Welcome to What We Will Abide. I'm Sam Schindler. In just a few short weeks, I'll start teaching classes that I've created entirely on my own for the first time, as we at the Stone Independent School embark on our inaugural academic year. At our brand new Progressive High School here in Lancaster City, there's a wide range of curricular options, limited only by the creativity of the instructor. Since I serve as the History Department Chair, this has led to my interest in creating a United States History class that's pretty different from any I ever took, and certainly different from those I've seen in other places I've taught. The class I'm interested in creating is predicated on the concept that the rise of American capitalism is a direct result of slavery, as argued in Edward Baptist's 2014 book, The Half Has Never Been Told. It's easy to become the richest nation in the world when you expropriate land and resources, and then engage in genocide, and then pivot and enslave millions of Africans and literally force them by means of brutal violence to build the economy, largely based on the cotton trade, while you reap all financial benefit. Then, once industrialization has firmly taken hold, you can turn around and revisit your colonial roots and become an imperial power in your own right, seeking out new resources, markets, and cheap, nearly free labor on far-flung shores. Neat trick, America. But then you hit a snag of sorts, because the institution of slavery requires that it lasts forever. Otherwise, once it comes to an end, you've got to deal with the aftermath. Once all those ex-slaves become free and putatively stand on equal ground, with equal voting and property rights, how can you then look them in the eye and say, let's just forget about the past? When it all comes crumbling down, you can't suddenly reconcile two and a half centuries of forced marches, fractured families, violence, degradation, humiliation, oppression, and thievery. So, because you can't, you don't. You whitewash, you justify, you equivocate, you lay blame, you mislead, you obfuscate, and you deny, deny, deny. You create further institutions which oppress and enslave, only you don't call them slavery. You vilify and you demonize. Then you can continue to deny property rights, voting rights. You can mass incarcerate, and you can pity, fear, blame, and shoot at with impunity. If the South had won, or no Emancipation Proclamation was proclaimed, you wouldn't have this problem. You wouldn't have had to do this dance. The same is true in the case of Israel and Palestine in the 20th and 21st centuries. If you'd managed to displace all Palestinians, or had exterminated them, you wouldn't currently have the demographic problem which serves as the reason for the intense, protracted, brutal, corrosive, and corrupt occupation of Palestinian land. Those big numbers of people simply wouldn't be there, and you wouldn't have to justify imprisoning them, both in open-air camps as well as bona fide lock-in facilities, or shooting them, or bombing them, or dropping white phosphorus on them, or, God forbid, proposing a two-state peace solution, which would cordon them off legally, but more importantly, keep them from outnumbering you. That's the real reason for the so-called peace process, by the way, the real reason why Palestinian statehood has even been entertained by Israeli legislators over the past 25 years. 
It's not out of some sense of duty or moral standing, or even political expediency on the matter. It's about numbers. This, by the way, is true of both ends of the political spectrum in Israel, such as it is, and it stretches back into the 1970s, when such a plan was first arrived as a result of the demographic problems caused by the all-encompassing Israeli victory in the 1967 war, and its subsequent adoption of so much territory. A move, I need not remind us all, was almost immediately repudiated by the UN Security Council in its infamously ineffectual Resolution 242, arrived at in November of that same year. Okay, why am I talking about all of this? This podcast began a year ago. Around the same time, I began to come to terms with the fact that the next official classes I teach would be ones I designed on my own, on subject matters of my choosing, with authentic political approaches I needn't be afraid to reveal. So two of the classes that will be offered will do exactly that, one with the United States history and one with the history of two entities known for three quarters of a century as Israel and Palestine. I'm sharing my intent for these classes now as a means of, in part, documenting their development and ultimately charting their progress. Will I wind up doing what I set out to do? Is what I'm setting out to do well-conceived or utterly misguided? Is it too narrowly drawn? Does it skew matters without the proper proportion of self-awareness and humility? These are just some of the pitfalls I'm afraid of. So I'm going to delve a bit further into my thinking on both these topics, distinct yet thematically related. This is your fair warning. I'm about to ruminate on what I've learned so far during this period of research and preparation, which will include throwing out some thoughts, ill-formed and incomplete though they may be. I'll be wrestling with ideas that seemingly conflict or skew uncomfortably from one to the other. So if you're not into that, you can hit stop now and go about the rest of your day. So here goes. The story we've long been taught about the origins of our country leaves out a lot and gets a lot wrong. It deliberately forgets the genocide, still ongoing, of the people who lived here before Europeans arrived. It does this so the story, which feeds a nation's identity, can avoid confronting the truth about a continued war against indigenous people here. The terminology itself is antiseptic, the detail smudged, the sheer horror of it buried. David Stannard, among others, does the unthinkable and tries to remind us of what happened in graphic recollection. He does this in a book called American Holocaust, which was published in 1992. A number of descendants of those many thousands of tribes and many tens of millions of people attempt to break through the opacity and shout-out reminders as well, while telling of the modern horrors they still face. The Standing Rock story of last winter is much more an Indian story than it is about a pipeline. People defending their land at the cost of their bodies, people leaning upon what's left them, and that's intangible in order to fight a very tangible war. We're told not to see it that way. Moreover, we're told they're the aggressors, the eco-terrorists, the religious fanatics. Otherwise, we'd have to see this story within the context of every other people whose land was stolen from them, who were killed en masse. We'd have to acknowledge the continuum. Stannard took the impossible step. He called it a genocide. People are still reeling from that, and he said it back in 1992. He can't use that word. It's reserved for other actual genocides. 
The story of this country forgets that our forefathers, those great enlightened men, owned slaves, and in fact great numbers of them. Our greatest hero of all owned over 200 slaves, and he didn't even purchase them himself. They were gifted to him through his wife when his father-in-law died. The dissonance there is never even mentioned, let alone dealt with, and according to American historian and former textbook author Steve Schenken, it's a good reason we're in the mess we're in, so to speak. The inability, the unwillingness to admit the paradoxical truth. This was a nation founded upon the ideals of equality and liberty, and it was also a nation that was founded and thrived upon inequality and unliberty, that is, the slavery of millions. That we haven't seen fit to even discuss the matter has pushed this country into a deep, schizoid state. We don't know who we are. Slavery provided economic profit, the likes of which no major nation had ever seen before. It was an institution that led to the exponential reproduction and expansion of itself. Over about an 80-year period, it made lots and lots of white men very rich. It floated an ever-growing economy with the purchase of new lands to push slaves into so that they wouldn't coalesce into a revolutionary body like the Haitians did in the late 18th century. It led to the ballooning of credit doled out by banks that cropped up like weeds overnight in the South. Slave owners mortgaged the bodies of their slaves, borrowing money from numerous creditors against future slave labor, promising and then finding a means to deliver ever more bales of cotton to northern distributors, who would ship it overseas to British manufacturers, who would ship it back to America for retailers to sell to an ever-growing base of consumers. Slavery led to the Louisiana Purchase, as Napoleon had to take his eye off the pearl at the mouth of the Mississippi to dispense with the pesky, irreverent Haitians. Slavery led to the proliferation of banks and further plantations, of legislation meant to placate slave owners in slave states, to the fugitive slave law, to bleeding Kansas, to John Brown, to the Civil War and millions of casualties, and then, of course, to a means of self-justification in the form of Jim Crow, segregation, mass incarceration, and trigger-happy police officers. This is where the problem for me arises. This is a narrative I wish to tell. This is the piece that, in its most gruesome and granular detail, the majority of American history purveyors and digesters have long evaded. And this is what I'd like to do, to tell the story that no one wants to hear. But I don't really know the whole story. I know what I know, and the rest is a murky, plunging abyss. And in large part, it stems from the contemporary conversation about race, which of course you can't understand until you've done the history, which is why I do it. But what to do about it? If we can't pretend any longer that genocide and slavery aren't an indelible and in fact extremely significant portion of the growth and development of this country, then we have to arrive at some way of understanding what to do. And here's where I feel split in two, or three, or more. The argument I face is this. Of late, my conception of black politics, shaped largely by the increase in awareness of structural racism, is that simply you see it everywhere, along with structural sexism, heteronormativity, etc., etc., and it therefore needs to be called out. I have tried to become more aware of the inherent racism that I exude, I'm not doing a 100% perfect job on this, but I'm trying. I've noticed that I'm a bit less inclined to make a certain kind of joke or use a certain kind of language now. But as it goes with these kinds of things, I tend to go a bit overboard. 
I know this about myself, but then it sort of becomes the reality, and I react to everything as if it is. What I mean is this. Right now, I find myself reacting angrily to whiteness, even though whiteness isn't really even a thing, and it was actually invented in the 17th century, but we'll get to that in a little bit. I'm sick of it perpetuating only itself and ignoring the privilege that got it there, and in turn, ignoring the uncomfortable truths that accompany it. In politics, in media, in entertainment, in education, in literature, in everything. So I want to champion different voices. And I've done things like start to argue for the logic of reparations. And critique programs and organizations that I feel suffer either explicitly or implicitly from white guilt or white savior complexes. And people don't like hearing this, so I think it's therefore the right thing. But... I was recently told that doing things like this actually perpetuates racism. In order to make a bit more sense of this, I refer to an activist and a writer with Haitian roots, Pascal Robert, who writes for the Black Agenda Report and was recently interviewed on a podcast called Dead Pundit Society. Catchy title. Robert's critique of groups like Black Lives Matter, for example, focus on the emphasis on, quote, disparity statistics, unquote, which only serve to separate black economic disadvantage from white economic disadvantage, when the crush of capitalism harms them all. What he means is that dwelling on the fact that black people are poor and have been shut out of American economic opportunity from the very beginning only invites elites, both black and white, to keep marginalizing them. In addition, Robert is vehemently anti-reparations and takes Tanisi Coates to task on this count and others. His point is that reparations are pro-capitalists and, again, have racial disparity at their core. What he fervently advocates for instead is a coalition of both poor blacks and whites, which would offer a robust challenge to capitalism, the real enemy of the people. As a reference point, he mentions Bacon's Rebellion, which took place in Virginia in 1676 and pitted a unified group of black slaves and white indentured servants against Governor William Berkeley, whom they eventually chased out of town. The rebels were infuriated by Berkeley, who raised, quote, great unjust taxes upon the commonality, unquote, and monopolized the beaver trade. Essentially, these were landless laborers taking out their frustration on their land-owning oppressor. Of course, Berkeley was also accused of being too friendly to Indians, a group whose blood the apparently egalitarian Bacon and his allies were all too eager to shed. The adulation I've heard for Bacon and his mixed band of rebels doesn't include this detail. And coming upon this once again reminded me of something I often forget. Everyone selects facts to their advantage. I've done it myself. Many, many, many times. You use what supports your argument the most, and you jettison the rest. Or as one of my best graduate school professors once said, you just bury the counter evidence in footnotes. Which reminds me of something else something that I'm working on, something that I'd like to change about the way I operate in the classroom. Far too often, I've needed to be right. This goes for content I feel passionate about and content that just happens to be the order of the day. Either way, I felt the need to argue for things I'm teaching about, be it a particular element of religious philosophy or some individual endeavor. Far too often, the classroom has become an auditorium whose lectern I stand behind preaching to insolent rabble who don't know any better. The need to be right and the energy spent getting there exhausts me, and it isn't good pedagogy. And yet, as I confessed in episode 44, 
When I feel imbued with something that I know is true on a granular level, I defend it to the death, sometimes to my detriment. And while I'm currently mired in trying to figure out where I stand and how to approach the grim legacy of slavery and systemic racism in my country and the world, everything I read and hear and see about Israel and Palestine brings me closer to an incontrovertible, inviolable position. And here I switch gears a bit. Of historically specific eras and events, I've probably read most on Israel and Palestine. I'm still nowhere near uniquely qualified to lecture on the topic in public forums, although I have, recently at the Peace Action Network panel discussion this past spring, see episode 42. I have certainly talked about it a great deal in classrooms, of several kinds, and in social circles, sometimes invited to, and sometimes not. In preparing for an elective I will offer at Stone this year, I sought out texts I knew to be trustworthy, accessible, and to my mind, told the correct truth. This is already a mistake, I know. In fact, when I consulted a colleague on the matter of texts to use, he suggested that the best route might be to choose one text from each ideological perspective. I immediately bristled at this idea. Why would I deliberately deliver propaganda, skew data, cherry-pick statistics, outright lies? As far as I'm concerned, there are fundamental facts which need no further explanation, no contextualization from one side or the other. There is the expropriation of land from an indigenous people who lived in Palestine for over 500 years. Rashid Khalidi does a thorough, refreshingly dispassionate job of presenting the evidence in his 1997 book, Palestinian Identity. It goes a long way to repudiate the odious claim Golda Meir made back in 1969 that there was, quote, no such thing as a Palestinian people, unquote, and that, quote, it was not as though there was a Palestinian people in Palestine considering itself as a Palestinian people, and we came in and threw them out and took their country away from them. They did not exist, unquote. Better than justifying your oppression of a people, just pretend they aren't there and never were. Then there's the ethnic cleansing of Palestine between 1947 and 1949, well documented by Israeli historians of the, quote, revisionist, unquote, camp, Benny Morris and Elon Poppet. This perspective came to the fore in the early 1990s, as the famous Oslo peace was first being brokered and then left to wither. During that period, in which the modern state of Israel was born, about three-quarters of a million Palestinians were killed or displaced from their homes, sent scattered to neighboring countries like Lebanon, Syria, and Jordan, who largely didn't want them. Their descendants now likely number about five million. Then, irrefutably, there is the Six-Day War, which took place in 1967, a war orchestrated by an Israeli army eager to unseat Gamal Abdel Nasser, Egypt's pan-Arabist premier. That Israel initiated the offensive is well documented by preeminent Israel-Palestine historian Norman Finkelstein in various publications and interviews. American and Israeli intelligence documents, now declassified, make it clear that the Israelis pestered Johnson's administration time and time again, asking for the green light to blow Nasser away. They never actually got it, but after the swift triumph, they certainly got the attention of the Americans, who then pivoted and saw them as a potential ally in the deepening Cold War, and a means of reestablishing American hegemony given the protracted quagmire in Vietnam. Following the official ceasefire in June of 1967, the Israelis pushed further into Syria in effort to provoke a Syrian response. The goal here was dominion over the Golan Heights. The West Bank, Jerusalem, 
and the Sinai, including Gaza, had already been secured, but Israel wanted more. It's Moshe Dayan himself who admits to being the architect of the Syrian provocation and explains its purpose in no uncertain terms. It's then, of course, the intermediate and pointed effort to occupy lands taken by force, territory that is euphemistically called disputed, when in fact it's not disputed by anyone at all. Everyone knows the land belongs to, or belong to. This is better described as occupation, but really it's a steady buildup of settlement all throughout the West Bank, among other places. Though it technically withdrew its most intrepid settlers from Gaza in 2005, the Israeli military has effectively controlled every aspect of the lives of the 1.5 million Palestinians who live in what's often referred to as the world's largest open-air prison. Israel controls everything that goes in and out of Gaza, blockades its one tiny port, and for good measure, does things like regularly demolish homes and cut off electricity. Not to mention the three devastating major military offensives levied on Gaza in 2008, 2012, and again in 2014. Then there's the diversion of the Jordan River's headwaters, the burning of olive and fruit trees belonging to Palestinian farmers, and of course the wall which divides towns, herds of livestock, and families in half since its inception. In 2004, the International Court of Justice rendered an opinion that the wall was illegal in a unanimous 15-0 decision. Somehow this list feels merely anecdotal, as if the real story lies much further in between the milestone moments. And somehow, just listing all these things tires me out. So I want to teach these classes to share this information, even though it's so mortally debilitating, or perhaps I want to because it is. Burden someone else, I suppose. I realize this isn't exactly a ringing endorsement for taking history class with me, but hey, I, I try to tell a lot of jokes. Again, these are works in progress, and I'm interested to see how they play out in the classroom with more brains than just my own. And though I note my need to be right, which still persists, I always learn from my students. You don't really learn anything unless your assumptions are met with questions or even carefully cultivated criticism. When students challenge me and each other, that's when a classroom is most dynamic, and that's when the greatest amount of people are learning the most. Thanks for listening to this episode of What We Will Abide. In the show notes, I'll include links to the books, individuals, and interviews I mentioned. In future episodes, I'll be interviewing Michael Dybert, who is a native Lancastrian who's come back to his hometown for just a short respite and was gracious enough to tell me some stories about his journalistic work done in places like Haiti, Mexico, and the Congo. So look for that interview in the future, and you can find, as always, older episodes of What We Will Abide on samschindler.com and on the What We Will Abide Facebook page. I'm reachable through my website and also on Twitter at samschindler43. If you have a minute, please leave an iTunes review. It helps newer listeners find the show. And if you have feedback, questions, or comments, or vitriol, or anything in response to this episode, please don't hesitate to share. You can leave comments under the episodes on the website, or you can leave comments under the episode on the Facebook page, whatever you'd like. I welcome dialogue and would love to see more of it.